Listen, welcome to, uh, to the sermon part of worship. We had some singing already. Let me decode something for you. Right below you on the screen, um, there's a link for sermon notes. Click on that and open it up. Have that open in a different tab, or if you're, uh, if you're, you know, prefer having this, you can always print this out ahead of time if you're a pen and paper kind of a person. But in that note section, there are, uh, there are scriptures in blue underneath each of the points. So I tend to throw out a lot of different scriptures commenting on the text or idea that we're saying, and sometimes people frantically go, where was that verse again? It's written down for you. So take a deep breath. It's already done for you. So you can go back. There's actually a great Bible study tool later on in the week um, to, to go back and check out these verses and, and, and whatnot. So good to see you already logging on, saying hi and, uh, and welcoming one another. Man, a couple of things that leap out to me. One, Donna, you're already talking about this graph and sort of thinking through it in a math mind. That fits you perfectly. I love how many of you are saying hi, family. Man, that's just going to tie into the theme of what we're talking about this morning. If you're new here, just welcome. So glad that you're here. So glad that you're tuning in and watching. Uh, if you live in San Jose, when we open back up, normally we're church on the lawn. Love to come and meet you in person someday. All right, let me ask you this question. When was the last time that what you thought was possible was dramatically expanded? Think about that for a minute. We all have sort of what, what we think is possible in this life. And once in a while, there are breakthrough moments where what we thought was possible is not just expanded a little, but a lot. Our world changes when this happens. Whatever framework we were living out of and thinking out of before is sort of shattered and we have to adapt. We have to build a new framework of how to think and, and act in these times. Now, this can be um, for good or for evil. This can be good news or bad news. This last Friday was September 11th, 9-11, and it was a day of remembrance. Those of us who lived through this day back in 2001 um, can recall sort of where we were and what was going on. I know for us, we were awakened that morning by our friend Holly. Our friend Holly was calling Becky, my wife, and frantically saying, where's your dad? Is your dad okay? We had no idea what she was talking about. Why would Becky's dad not be okay? You see, Becky's dad flew for United Airlines, and she said, turn on your TV. And by that point, one tower had been hit, and so we were watching the smoke coming off of it, and Becky began to to get in touch with her dad and make sure things were okay. As we sort of watched that scene unfold, all this great technology, all this great advancement we had, there was so much confusion, and here's where a lot of the confusion lay. How on earth could an airplane hit a building on a perfectly clear day. You see, the current framework made that impossible. Why? Because planes, commercial airliners, weren't being used as missiles up to that point in history. And so that wasn't even in the realm of possibility. But that day, it was expanded dramatically as to what was possible. Today we're going to be talking about another kind of remembrance, the idea of communion, sometimes called the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. You know, not all remembering is the same, is it? We commemorate 9-11, but we celebrate communion. Think about that for a minute. We're going to look into why are we celebrating 
this dark, evil moment of Jesus' death? Why would we be told to celebrate this and not just commemorate it? Turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. When I'm here in person, I can be looking out on people and there's a certain accountability that people are actually turning their Bibles or opening their iPads or looking at their phone, getting set up and ready. That accountability is lost now. But I want you still to open your Bible and see this for yourself. We don't go through the scripture um, just because. There's power in the way that the scriptures are formed. Your faith will be built as you see how these concepts build one upon another upon another. You will see a grand designer, a great author putting this together simply by looking at it yourself. So Luke chapter 22 will be in verse 14 in just a moment. There's good news, and that is this, that Jesus expands what is possible exponentially. Jesus expands what is possible exponentially. A saying that we often use around our church is this, come as you are, but don't stay that way. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. It's capturing a lot of ideas, but it's capturing this concept that Jesus expands what is possible. On the front end, he says, come. You're already loved far more than you could possibly believe. Far more than you think is possible. And what's possible on where you're going and what can happen in your life moving forward, let me expand that for you exponentially. We're trying to capture what Ephesians 3.20 and 21 says. Listen to this. Now all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us, listen to this, to accomplish infinitely more than we ask or think. Do you hear that? He is able to accomplish by his power that's at work within us infinitely more than what we ask or think. We can't even dream it up yet. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Man, that verse is like an overarching idea as we, as we sort of think about communion this morning. Now, I'm using a math motif this morning. I came across this accidentally. Um, I typed in uh, expand possibility exponentially and Google went all math on me. Right? I typed that in, and all of a sudden there were graphs and all these things, and so that kind of got my brain thinking along those lines. I found a website to help me understand what I was looking at, because this graph kind of popped up, and it's called mathisfun.com. Now, now think about this for a moment. Mathisfun.com is a cute little website. Uh, Ben's cheering over here off to my peripheral. Mathisfun.com is a website sort of giving explanation to basic math concepts. And I thought, really, you shouldn't call it math is fun because anyone looking at a website, math is fun, already knows these concepts. You should name that website math is lame, right? Or who needs math.com. That's what you should call it because then you would draw in people and convert them and teach them these basic things. I have a dad and three brothers who all ended up in math, science, numbers fields. I am the math ugly duckling of the family. What did I excel at? Drama, uh, music, um, 
uh, the arts, <laughs> uh, being goofy. Like those were the things I was good at. I wasn't, I, I didn't love math. I was sort of gen- genetically predisposed to be good at math, but I'm the math ugly duckling. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're Tate in our family. So Tate in our family is excelling at math. He's only in first grade, uh, but right now he has a little iPad and he's distance learning. He's distance learning all kinds of things besides math. In fact, when math comes up, um, he does his problems very, very quickly. He's done with it. Boom. After that, he helps his classmate and sister, Everly, who's facing him with her math because she doesn't know what's going on, so he goes over figures it out. After that, while the class is still working on their math problems, um, Tate goes to Hawaii. He figures out this week on his screen how to put Hawaii behind him, and he's giggling and laughing and showing mom that he's in Hawaii while the rest of the class is still working on math. They're still working on math while Tate figures out how to create a home office behind him. So now he's laughing that he's in his home office. Then Becky sends me a videotape. Uh, videotape. Wow, how old school is that? I'm here at the office, and she sends me the short video of Tate. He has drawn goals has a marble and is pl- he has designed and created and is playing a game all while everyone's still working on their math. Tate is exceptionally good at math. He's bored at this, so he's distance learning other kinds of things. I don't care what spectrum you are on the whole math is fun or not thing, but in coming across this and in using this, uh, this idea, this image, uh, let me just say this that I wrote down, Jesus expands possibility exponentially. That's what I thought that phrase was saying. I sent this to Ben. Ben was a math major at UC Davis. I said, Ben, how do you read this? And he texted back back to me, Jesus expands possibility exponentially. A plus, Dave, you got it right. Uh, The math guy told me what was going on. Here's what's powerful. When you look at that graph, unless you're a math is fun person, You probably need help from someone else to explain what you're looking at. Donna, you already said this. I love it. Gee, our graph this morning looks like God takes us, Jesus takes us from zero to infinity. Ben looked at this. He said, this is the fastest growing graph. And and as you look at this, and maybe you need someone else explaining what you're looking at, This is exactly what Jesus does at the Last Supper. Jesus is giving insight into what the disciples are doing, what they are looking at, what they are experiencing. In fact, he's actually giving interpretation for what they have been doing every year for their entire life. You see, this is the Passover meal. So so you Americans, like me, think Think, um, think Thanksgiving meal and Christmas sort of wrapped up into a ball. That's how big of a deal Passover would have been to every Jewish, Jewish child, sort of in the anticipation of what's coming up. It's Thanksgiving and Christmas all wrapped up into one giant celebration and a very specifically a meal. That's why Thanksgiving's in there, right? Because sitting down at a meal at Thanksgiving is, 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 is a, a really big part of it. What Jesus is doing is he is expanding. He says, I'm going to show you what you've been doing for your whole life and actually infuse it with new meaning, showing what's possible for the rest of your life. Jesus expands possibility exponentially. Why is that little X red? Well, it's because it's blood red, right? It's wine red. All right, so that's our visual metaphor for this morning. It's the institution. Your Bible might say this, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Well, that's just a fancy way of saying Jesus' dinner. 
That's all this is. This is the last time he has dinner with his friends. So Luke chapter 22, verse 14. um, What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the institution of the Lord's Supper in three words. Okay, so if you're taking notes, write down this first word. The first word is time. It says this in verse 14, and when the hour came. Let me hit pause there for a moment. This is a massive deal. Sometimes we read through four words and we just kind of get on to the good stuff, the main part. But if you take Luke as a whole and you see these words, and when the hour came, it it rings in your mind that this has been building for the entire gospel. You see, a deadline of sorts has arrived, an appointment. Deadlines, that's kind of an ominous word, by the way, isn't it? I think the positive things like weddings, graduation day, moving out, those ought to be called like lifelines or something. But deadline is really serious and ominous. There are, there are certain deadlines that are really, really good, right, and fun, and we look forward to them. There are certain deadlines um, that, are, that are a lot more difficult, uh, say, you know, finals coming up or an operation coming up or the day of your death right? There are appointments, there are deadlines that happen to us, some that we anticipate and look forward to, some that we anticipate and don't look forward to, some that we know when they're going to happen, some that we don't know when they're going to happen. But all deadlines share some similar kinds of traits. There's a certain anticipation. There might be planning or lack of planning. There's worry, there's pondering. There's sort of a wondering of what will it be like after this moment, this appointment happens? What will life be like beyond that? You see, big moments produce big feelings because so much is at stake. This moment in history, in the story of Jesus, in the gospel, is monumental. Remember that Jesus came incognito. It's God dressed in baby skin, perfectly smooth, and then it grew into junior high acne and pimples, and then it became common carpenter skin, just a regular man. Only in these last three years has Jesus emerged on the scene, and sort of his his own ministry went from being invisible, almost incognito, and it slowly has begun to grow, but then it grows very, very rapidly. You see, Jesus practiced what he preached. He lived what he preached. What did he preach? Think about things that start itsy-bitsy and grow really, really rapidly. Mustard seed. Remember that? Manure. Yeast. These are things that start really, really small, and pretty soon they begin to take hold, and very rapidly they exponentially change the scenario. What seems insignificant at the beginning grows and builds until there are remarkable results. Do you see it? Jesus expands possibility exponentially, not just a little, but a lot. This common carpenter turns into a traveling teacher, and he's now emerging as the promised Messiah, but not everyone sees it just yet. The hour has come. Jesus sees it, and he wants to expand the understanding of his disciples. He's meeting them where they are at, and he's drawing them into their new future. When Luke says that the hour has come, it's not just the Passover. It's not just Passover meal that's come. This is the moment in history. History hinges on what is about to take place. In fact, the language Jesus 
uses in this passage um, just illuminates the weightiness of this moment. Look at, these, look at these terms. The hour came before I suffer, until it is fulfilled, from now on, until the kingdom of God comes, as it has been determined. Do you see that there's an unseen timeline here? And Jesus sees it, and he's cluing his followers in. Not only then, but his followers now, that we see it as well. Here's a little pull-out principle to think about. Jesus is king, and the king is in control. The plans of men and women can never deter or detour God's plans. You see, the plan of salvation is safely on track, and it is on time. It incorporates and includes plans of destruction. Judas and Jesus are sitting side by side. Verse 22 says this, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Both the death of Jesus and the betrayal of Judas are known and orchestrated by the great author, God our Father. Both his mercy and and justice are safely intact. So Christian, here's what we do. In faith, we joyfully press on even in this moment when our world or the whole world seems to be just off the rails completely. We rest, we joyfully press on, knowing that God is at work. He's always been at work. He's still in charge. His timetable is still set and can't be thwarted. So the possibility and potential of time is expanded infinitely for us because of Jesus. In fact, every time you ever celebrate communion, it ought to remind you of the eternal life, of the unlimited amounts of time that you now get to savor the relationship you have with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. That's our first word, time. Before I get to our second word, think about this. What is on Jesus' mind? What is in his heart? What is he feeling? What is he doing at this moment in time? The most impactful moment in time. This is why he was born. He's going to come fulfill the mission. In a few short hours, he will say what? It is finished. Because it will be all over. He'll have accomplished what he came to do. On this grand moment, what's on his mind? Think about this. His friends, this intimate group of people that he's with. The second word that you can write down is simply the word friend. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. What is on Jesus' mind? Eating with the apostles, earnestly desiring to be with them. He doesn't bail on his friends to go be important. He draws in close to his community in this moment. The very word communion, think about it, it contains the root word where we get the word commune, the word community, the word communication. To say that we celebrate communion is to savor all that we have in common because of the cross that broke 
the dividing wall. First, the dividing wall between God and mankind. But secondly, the dividing wall, not just between God and us, but us and us. There's, 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 a, there's a dividing hostility between people because of sin. And God first breaks the dividing wall of hostility between God and us, and then us and us allows us to be in right relationship with one another. You know, all the best research in the world shows us just how important body language is to communication. In fact, if you parents communicate, say, speak a message of acceptance, warmth, and safety, but your face and your body language, your positioning, the way your finger wags or whatever, doesn't match what's being said. Guess which one registers with your child? You guessed it. It's the tone of the voice over the words. It's the body language over the words being spoken. If you're communicating, oh, I understand, and it's a pandering, condescending kind of wink-wink to another adult in the room, I guarantee what they will receive is the body language over the spoken language. The Bible has taught us this all along, right? Go read the book of James. Your actions matter. Read your Old Testament. doesn't matter what lip service you give. What you do, how you live this out, shows your faith. I had a buddy that I was an intern under named Dave Underwood, and Dave Underwood had a favorite saying that went something like this. Your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Catch it? Your walk talks... And your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. He's illustrating this exact point. That what we say matters, but what we do matters even more. Jesus is communicating some things to his friends. You matter. You are welcome. You are covered. You are truly loved. It's going to be okay. But he's saying more than words. He's demonstrating what he's trying to communicate. His actions tell them just how much he truly loves and cares for them. This meal is a kind of preview to what is going to become the greatest demonstration of love the world has ever seen. This idea of sharing the cup is a sign of friendship. Look at verse 15. It says, And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. The Passover meal contains four distinct cups or four distinct times of drinking the wine. It's unclear which one this was, but it explains why there's a distinct passing and thanking and sharing of this cup and one that happens after the meal. Sharing a meal means a lot more then and now in the Middle East than it does uh, even here today. It's an, it's an opening up to, res, to relationship. It's a welcoming. It's a public sign of acceptance to that person. So much more is happening here at this dinner than caloric intake, right? There's, there's all kinds of, of subtext. There's all kinds of threads happening. During this last dinner with his friends, Jesus is giving us 
an example to follow. Now remember that Luke is not an eyewitness. He wasn't there this night. But John, he was an eyewitness. It doesn't negate any of Luke's weightiness to it. But I just want to call that out. John was an eyewitness disciple of Jesus. He was there this night. He includes this little episode that happens during this Passover meal, uh, probably because he, he could never forget it. In John chapter 13, just listen, I'm going to read it for you. But in John chapter 13, it says this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he now loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, I, if I do not wash you, you have no one to share you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Catch this. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus' love and friendship and humility don't stop there. His service speaks volumes. You can bring it back to picture in picture now. Thanks. His service speaks volumes, but his sacrifice on behalf of another is exponentially louder. So for the master to get down and do servant's work was mind-blowing. It expanded the possibility of what should be happening. This is why the confusion with Peter. In John 15, 13, he says these words, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So what was possible in the way of how we relate in friendship was that we wash one another's feet, that we serve. And Jesus is about to expand that exponentially by laying down his life for his friend. On September 11th each year, we remember and celebrate those first responders who, while everyone else is running for their lives away from danger, they are found running toward danger to save lives. We tend to always comment on how many lives were lost and then how many lives were sacrificed, some on a plane over Pennsylvania and some first responders. But how often do we think about how many lives were saved that day? Estimates vary. It's probably hard to understand this exactly. But some 20,000 people were saved on 9-11 because of the sacrificial love and work of others. That's bravery. 
What sets Jesus' love apart from all others before or since is this simple fact. That Judas was at this meal. That Judas had his feet washed. Jesus dies not just for his friends and followers, but for his enemies, for his killers. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. And Jesus loved even his betrayer to the end. Jesus expands the possibility of friendship. You see, friendship and intimacy and closeness closeness and communication that has been enjoyed by this close band of brothers is coming to an end as they knew it. And a brand new way of friendship, of intimacy, of closeness, of communication is about to explode into reality, not just for the twelve, soon to be the eleven, but for, watch this, all people, everywhere, for all of time. That's what's going on here. The possibility is expanded, not just a little, but exponentially. Jesus expands what is possible. God and human in close, intimate, understanding, warm relationship. The flesh of Jesus, that's what we celebrate at the incarnation at Christmas, that Jesus took on flesh, is God coming close. The Spirit of God residing in us is God coming exponentially closer. This is what Jesus meant, at least in part, when Jesus says, it's actually better that I go away than if I were to stay in the flesh. Why? Because the possibility for a relationship blows beyond the four walls of the upper room. The cross doesn't just open our friendship with God in mind-blowing ways, but there's this residual fruit of how it changes our relationship with other people. Have you ever bonded quickly and deeply because the, the person you're with shares a deep love of Jesus? Thursday, I was at work and I received a really pleasant surprise. Steve Weisenberger pastors Bernal Church and he prays virtually in my office every week with me and evidently Steve enjoys hamburgers. I didn't know this, but he sent me this text with the following uh, little tagline underneath it. It says, met this guy at In-N-Out today. What a joy of a man. I didn't know if Steve knew joy before this or not. Turns out he didn't. But they got talking and they bonded as brothers and they sat and had a meal together. Man, joy, miss seeing you in person. Love your hugs on Sunday morning. Hope you're doing well. You know, here's our one another verse. Every single week, we are, we are being trained in how to function as the household of God. How do we interact with each other? How do we interact with those outside the faith? The Bible tells us. They're called the one another verses. Our one another verses from John 13, where we are told to wash one another's feet. Jesus didn't just do that, but he did that as an example for us to follow. And in community group this week, you're going to wrestle with a lot of questions, but here's, here's a central question to what's going on in our national discussion right now. What does this radical new understanding of what is possible between not only God and man, but between man and man, say to the national race discussion going on? Here's what I can guarantee, that unless the gospel is experienced and lived, 
The politically left and the politically right completely miss the mark. Here's why. Neither one of them can even imagine what is possible. Why? Because they're not functioning from a Jesus framework. They are functioning outside of a Jesus framework, so the left and right politically will never go far enough. Do not look to your solutions from those on the left or the right. Look to Jesus as king. Get a Jesus framework on what is radically, exponentially possible in relationships one with another. If Jew and Gentile was bridged by the gospel, if Samaritan and Galilean is bridged, USA, there's hope for us. Immense hope. One commentator said this, as believers participate in the supper, they are reminded of the oneness within the body of Christ and of the fellowship that is shared among fellow believers. The observance is one that is so simple that a believing child can partake with a sense of understanding. Yet it also contains so many doctrinal ramifications that even the most mature believer will not fully comprehend its meaning. 1 Corinthians 10.17 says simply, And though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. Jesus expands the possibility of friendship far beyond what you can even ask or imagine. Here's our third word. The third word is simply life. Jesus instituted two ordinances or sacraments that are to be observed by the church. One is baptism. Baptism is, is observed once by each individual Christian, usually at the beginning of their spiritual walk. It is a sign of them dying to their old self, going into the grave with Jesus, and being resurrected to new life. It is to be done publicly and once. Communion, on the other hand, again, sometimes called the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, the Lord's Table, all the same thing. Communion is to be observed repeatedly and is a sign of continuing in fellowship with Jesus. So we have one at the start of the relationship saying, I am now a publicly uh, outed follower of Jesus Christ. Communion says I'm still in fellowship with him. We use the marriage metaphor around here for this. Baptism is a little bit like your wedding day, right? What's a wedding? It's a public declaration. It doesn't need to be repeated. It's a once-for-all-time thing. You're making a vow and a covenant, and you're doing that publicly and demonstrating it. So what is communion? Communion, then, is like date night, right? Uh, Date night is set-aside time to reaffirm your pure devotion, to look back and remember, to look ahead and to savor the present. That's what date night is all about. Jesus here is initiating with his disciples a whole new way of living and relating to God, of being God's people and the church. Let me take you back to Passover meal just for a moment. This is a holiday or holy day, that's what holiday means, commanded by God. Why would God command us to to, to celebrate holidays? Because it's for our good. So he tells the Jewish people to to celebrate Passover each year. What is it? It's a meal and a celebration that, that basically dramatizes and reminds the people of God's deliverance. It involved um, eating bitter herbs, there was the eating of a meal, there's wine taken on four distinct times, there's the singing of hymns, there's reading of Old Testament passages. 
Israel, which is God's people, were enslaved by Egypt for 430 years. God sends nine plagues to the leadership, to Pharaoh, all of which he ignores. And then he sends a tenth plague. What's the tenth plague? The tenth plague is this, the warning that the firstborn would all be killed across the entire land of Egypt, without exception, man or beast. And it was a warning to let my people go. But God's people were allowed to be spared the wrath of God. You see, they were commanded, take a lamb, quickly, do it in haste. Cover your doorpost with the blood of the lamb. Everyone get inside of that home. If you were found inside of that home, listen to this, you are covered by the blood. You are safe from the wrath of the death angel that will come through as judgment on the land. Those who trusted and obeyed the command were passed over. That's where Passover comes from. Why? Because they're covered by the blood of the sacrificial lamb. For centuries, this was a pointer, a sign pointing to something infinitely greater and far-reaching. The celebration was always just sort of a preamble. It was an introduction, an opening act, and now the main event is here. Jesus is here, and he is going to explain it for them. Look at verse 19. Jesus, and he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So the bread is the broken body of Jesus, willingly offered given for us. For indicates in our place. What's the cup? It's the blood of Jesus. It's poured out willingly, not spilled accidentally. It is poured out willingly for those who would trust him. The blood of Jesus seals the new covenant that was promised back in Jeremiah 31, 31. It's a covenant between God and man. The Old Covenant had this defining act of the Exodus, deliverance from the bondage to Egypt. What's the New Covenant? The defining act is the upcoming cross. Not just deliverance from bondage physically, but the final once-for-all salvation act of God on 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 behalf of helplessly enslaved sinners once for all time. No longer do the people of God need to look back to Egypt and celebrate God's saving work, now they will forever look back on the cross and remember the eternal victory that was accomplished for them there. Three years prior to this, Jesus' cousin John the Baptist says a mouthful in the early parts of John. John 1.29 records it this way. The next day, John, this would be the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. That's just beginning to to have the fog lift and come into shape of what those words meant some three plus years ago. 
this act is going to exponentially expand what is possible in life. Remember Jesus said, I have come to give you life more abundant, the abundant life. This is a part of what he was talking about. Because Jesus' death pays the penalty for sin, I don't have to. And I don't have to enforce it on others. God, the judge, can legally dismiss your case because the blood price, the guilt price, has been paid by Jesus. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This is part of that unending ramifications theologically that goes on as we partake of the elements this morning. This is the new way of life opened up. It's not just forgiveness of sins. It's not just a cleansed conscience. It is the power to overcome sin. It is the power to not be defeated and live in fear of death. But to walk in the full life and the footsteps of Jesus. Before taking communion today, I want to assume nothing, and I want to answer some questions that may arise in your minds. This is in your notes, but who should take communion? Well, let me say this. It's reserved for Christians. As a church, we are against promoting religiously nonsense ideas and practices. Because this symbolizes an ongoing commitment and a continuing fellowship with Jesus, it makes no sense for someone to take communion if you aren't already a disciple of Jesus. Lest you think somehow there's power in taking this magic unleavened bread and a cup and somehow that's where the power is. Now that said, Jesus' invitation is out to one and all. What that means is this, the invitation is spiritual. That means you don't have to walk an aisle in this church. I don't have to touch you and impart any kind of special message. The invitation goes out right now through the sound of my voice, through the calling of the Holy Spirit, and through the written word, that whoever comes to me, whoever would believe in me, they will have life and have forgiveness of their sins. So let me invite you today, if you've never done this, repent of your sin Place your whole trust in Jesus. Get inside of Christ and you will, you will get out from under the wrath of God. You will be saved from your sin. If that's you and you want to place your trust in Jesus Christ, then by all means, this morning, in a few moments, take your first communion. Maybe this will be your first communion that has meaning to you because you've done it before in the past only as a religious ceremony. So how should it be taken? There aren't tons of descriptors here, but there's a few. One is it should be taken regularly. It doesn't say specifically how often, but it should be taken regularly, and it should be taken in community. It's a communal thing. It's a together kind of a meal. Finally, what I'm going to call out this morning is it should be taken with reflection and reverence. Here's what I mean by this. 1 Corinthians 11.27, just listen to it. But listen for the warning and the action here, okay? There's a reverence component, and there's a reflection component to this passage. It says, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. 
Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Neither baptism nor communion are to be taken lightly. Exponentially more than the marriage covenant. These are solemn, weighty acts. So to play the outward game while living an inward lie, it actually does violence to the sacrament that you're participating in, and it mocks your Creator who sees all. This would be something like flirting with another woman while on a date with your wife. This would be like holding hands with someone while your wife is present and while she's looking at you on your date night. All the outward action that might be good. Look, honey, I took you on a date night. Yeah, but you were flirting with the waitress. Anything good in that action has just been inverted for pure evil. Do not play with communion just as you wouldn't play with baptism. So that's the reverent fear piece. How about the action? What does it mean to examine yourself? What does it mean to not discern the body and eat and drink judgment on yourself? I don't want to do that. What does it mean to to not take it in an unworthy manner? Well, here are a few ideas for you. Maybe you just take these three words and you sort of consider your time, your relationship to God and others, and the manner of your life. So before we jump right to communion, here are some prompts for you. Do my thoughts, words, actions vividly portray the unity with Christians that communion celebrates? Does my time, my life, my finances, my passion proclaim as loud as my mouth does to the self-sacrificing lordship of Jesus in my life? One more, do I delight in my Savior or just in what my Savior can get for me or do for me? Church, we are instructed in Scripture to make it right, right now. Make it right, right now. Isn't it true that you can be sitting in church, you're like, oh, that's good. I need to write that down. And then you realize writing it down doesn't do it. Writing it down is a good step. But it's so easy to not come back to it. It's so easy to justify and give yourself an out by Monday and say, well, I was a little emotional. Make it right, right now. Whenever we come to worship, we should make sure our relationships are right. To live at peace with all people, so far as it depends on us. In Matthew 5, Jesus says this, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, bringing financial gifts is the context, but worship is the general principle. This is certainly true for the Lord's table that we examine and then act quickly if there are relationships that are out of sync. So right now, is there something I need to make right right now? 
Is there someone I need to reach out to right now? We're going to take time over the next two songs to do just this. This is an opportunity to say, God, see if there be any wicked way in me. This is an opportunity for you possibly to get on your knees in repentance. Maybe you need to get on your phone and make right something that you've been putting off. Nothing is more important than this right now. Here's the beauty of live stream. Pause. You can pause it. You can pause it and make it right right now. If two songs isn't enough. This song we're about to sing is called Death is Arrested. Listen for this line. There's a communal aspect. Listen to us. You have made us new. Now life begins in you. Zero to infinity. You've got it right, Donna. So now joyfully sing of the exponentially more abundant life that we now have in Jesus. God, thank you, thank you, thank you doesn't say it quite enough. But God, we come this morning, not just on Sundays, but every day, marveling at what the cross purchased for us, freed us from, set us up for. And God, we don't shelter in place, we strive in place. We don't sign off with Stay safe and and keep our world small. But instead we sign off with dream big. Our focus and our priority is on you and what you would do in this chaotic time of the world. God, thank you that you continue to renew our minds and exponentially expand what's even possible because you're at work in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.